Well, thanks to those of you who are here in the room. You're welcome to have a seat. And uh, those of you who are joining us online, I want to say welcome to you. Uh, my name is Darren. I'm one of the Shepherds on staff. And we're continuing our study uh, called Citizens of Distinction out of the, the narrative portions of the book of Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter 4 this morning. So if you have a Bible or if you have one of our Daniel journals, I invite you to open that up to Daniel chapter 4. Now you've probably seen in the reading uh, that each week as these chapters are kind of lengthy, we're taking a selection out of that for our public reading. But that doesn't mean we're not looking at the whole chapter. And in fact, it's great practice for those of you who are part of this church family to be reading ahead. You know next week we're going to be looking at Daniel 5. The week after that we're going to be looking at Daniel 6. In the weeks that are coming, uh, we're going to be studying the Sermon on the Mount out of Matthew. So if you want to start preparing yourself for that, that's coming down the road. But, but we're actually looking at all of Daniel 4. We're just reading a certain section and most of our application will come out of that section. That's why we chose to read that. I want to say this too. If you're at home uh, and you're a young person, if you're a child or a kid and you're watching, uh, you may not know this, or maybe you do, but we have a video for you prepared out of the text in Daniel 4 called Kids Connect. You can find that on our Fullerton Free app and on our website, and it comes in our e-news email. It comes out midweek. If you've already downloaded that, now's a good time for you to start watching, and then you can join us at the end of our service as we take communion and worship more together uh, through song. But uh, there's also a coloring page that comes out every week. Maybe you've already printed that out. Uh, We want to make sure you know, kids, that there are resources available to you on purpose because uh, we're a family, young and old, right? And so we want to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to look into what God has said here in Daniel chapter 4. But if you've got that Kids Connect video, now's a good time to go check it out. Well, when we pick up in Daniel chapter 4, most theologians and scholars will say we're some 20 to 30 years after the events we studied last week with uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow to the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had put up. Now, there are some different ways in which they calculate that. We don't want to get lost in some of that math. But what you need to know is that some time has passed. And as we come to Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. You'll remember he's had a dream before. Uh, It's interesting to note the difference here between the first dream... And this dream, the dream in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar said, troubled him. Uh, This dream terrifies him. It terrifies him. It's a different kind of a dream. And I would say, I think in some ways this dream in Daniel chapter 4 terrifies him because I actually think... I think Nebuchadnezzar knows what this dream means. Uh, he's asking people for interpretation, but I actually think he's got, I mean, it's, a, it's pretty clear as far as the dream goes. I think he has a sense of what's coming um, and it terrifies him because he, he knows. He knows what's about to happen. But Nebuchadnezzar has this dream in Daniel chapter four and the dream essentially, if you were to read the first 18 verses or so as he describes it, by the way, another interesting little, little fact as you're studying Daniel four is that Daniel four is autobiographical. So the, the, the voice here changes This isn't Daniel narrating these things anymore. This is now Nebuchadnezzar himself giving a testimony. So if you look at the first couple of verses of Daniel chapter 4, he he speaks in his own voice. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. It's interesting that he gives it to us in first person. This is in essence, Daniel chapter four is in essence uh, him giving witness. It's him giving testimony, right? To what has occurred and what God has done for him. That's an interesting thing for him to uh, refer to this as because what we're gonna see in the course of the text is that what God does is punish him actually quite severely. Um, There is a rebuke and a punishment for Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter, and yet as Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar reflects upon it, in hindsight, he sees it as God's goodness toward him. That's important. We'll come back to that when we get to the end. 
But basically in the first 18 verses of Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar articulates this dream he has. And we heard a little bit of it in the section that we read. But in essence, the, ne- the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has that troubles is him is a dream of a giant tree. A tree that is so tall and so beautiful and so filled with fruit and life that you can see it from every place on the earth. Right? Giant tree. And it says the birds of the air come to live in this tree and all of the animals on the planet come and they find their shade and their nourishment under this tree. And in essence, this dream is a picture of Nebuchadnezzar's own pride. It's, an, it's sort of an overstatement of his own importance. This dream he has is Nebuchadnezzar picturing himself as both the provider and the giver of life to every person on the planet. Now granted, Babylon has a mighty kingdom and Daniel will even affirm that. Daniel will say, man, you've grown powerful and your kingdom has grown large and you, you are providing for a lot of people. But what's happened in the life of Nebuchadnezzar and the reason he has this dream and the reason that God comes along to rebuke him is because in the process of Nebuchadnezzar's realm and his power and his wealth and his influence growing, he begins to think of himself as the tree under which every creature on the earth finds its nourishment and shade. And that's a misunderstanding of his position. I think sometimes we get an overinflated sense of our ego. Well, in the dream that he has, he dreams this giant tree, all of these creatures taking shade and nourishment, birds in it. And then it says a watcher or one of the holy ones, that's an angelic being, comes in the dream and orders that the, tr- that the tree be chopped down and destroyed, but not uprooted. That's an interesting point to understand too. The tree is not uprooted, but it's capped with metal. The idea there being that the tree will not grow until that cap is removed, but there is still the potential for future growth, Right? We see all throughout the scripture that God would prefer to redeem. God would prefer to redeem than just to punish alone. There is more glory for God all throughout his word in correction and repentance through redemption, right? Than there is through justice alone. Could God have just killed Nebuchadnezzar? Absolutely. Could God have just laid waste to his kingdom? Absolutely. But what this holy one does is he comes and he chops down the tree that's providing shade and nourishment, all these things, and he caps it. The capping of the, of the root system is in essence an indicator that there is potential for growth in the future if things should change and if things will change. That's just something great about our God. But he has this disturbing dream. I don't know if you ever have dreams that trouble you or if you ever have dreams that, uh, that terrify. Maybe you have nightmares. I don't know if, if that's a part of your... I have, I have a couple of recurring what my wife and I call stress dreams, right? I have stress dreams that, that happen probably once every couple of weeks. One of my recurring stress dreams is uh, actually it occurs in this room. And uh, in my dream, I'm sitting right over there like I was a second ago. And, uh, and the, the worship team finishes the song before I'm meant to get up and preach. And just before they finish the song, I look down into my Bible and realize that I don't have my sermon notes, right? They look like this. I realize that I don't have them, number one. Number two, in this dream, I don't even know what I'm supposed to be teaching on. And in the dream, I don't have a sense of the text. I don't know what series we're in. I don't really even know if it's, like, I start to question kind of everything. Like, is it my, am I supposed to go up on stage now? And if so, what should I say? In the dream, I come up on stage and I have nothing prepared. I haven't done any of my research. I haven't done any of my prayer, my preparation to preach. And I stand up in front of people and I just kind of start to try and make it up, right? And, uh, and that doesn't work very well. And anyway, I have to kind of run off and it's not, it's not great. I have that dream, like, probably twice a month. And I know exactly where that dream comes from, right? I know exactly where that dream comes from. It comes from my absolute, like absolute uh, 
assurance in the necessity of preparation, of coming prepared. That when I come on a Sunday morning to teach, I've done my work, right? I've spent time in the text. I've spent time seeking God. I've spent time thinking through what God would say to our congregation. But there is a part of me that knows that if I get careless, or if I get lackadaisical, or if I start to slough off or whatever, that, that it, it's possible for me as a human being to be unprepared, right? And I don't want that to happen. So that, that stress dream occurs to me occasionally. It's a, it's a troubling dream. But it's not a terrifying dream. It's not like I get murdered in it or whatever. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about his own pride, about the overstatement of his own importance and his own influence. And in this dream, we will come to understand, and Nebuchadnezzar comes to understand, that God is reminding him that the kingdom he has and the power he has and the influence he has and the wealth he has have all been given to him by God. They are not things that he himself earned or things that he himself has procured. They are things that have been given him by God and things that can be taken away. In fact, if we look at the end of Daniel chapter 4, we see a bit of a worship chorus that Nebuchadnezzar writes in response. It says, at the end of days, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? You will notice that for Nebuchadnezzar, the ordeal that he endures over these seven seasons, as declared in the dream, they cause him to rethink who has the power. And who ultimately has all the influence and who ultimately provides all the shade and the substance for the creatures of the earth. Nebuchadnezzar, through the course of this ordeal, is able to come to the recognition that it is God who is the provider of all things. And the rest of us, we're, we're just following his lead. We're serving him. We serve at the whim and the will of the true king, right? Uh, Psalm, you might be familiar with this Psalm. Psalm 103 verse 19 puts it in the proper perspective. Psalm 103, 19 says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. There is a natural hierarchy to the universe and it is the kingdom of God and his throne and his rule and his reign and every other rule and reign and authority and power is submitted to him and depends upon him for its sustenance, right? Nebuchadnezzar learns that lesson here. He has this terrifying dream in which he pictures this tree that gets chopped down. The watcher comes and says, chop it down, destroy it, cap it. And then it it changes in its language to where uh, it says, let him wander among the field and eat grass like an ox and let the dew of the grass be upon him, right? The dream, as we come to understand, is a dream of judgment for Nebuchadnezzar that he will lose his mind, essentially, and that for seven seasons, his kingdom will be taken away from him as he lives like a madman. He goes out into the wilderness eating grass like a wild animal. His fingernails grow. It says his hair becomes like feathers, right? God pronounces this judgment upon him so that he'll remember who is actually the provider of the sustenance and shade the kingdoms of the earth. But what I want us to look at specifically here today is not just God's judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar, not just the fact that Nebuchadnezzar had some things to learn, not just that Daniel was in the right place at the right time to declare these things, and not even that God prefers to correct and draw people to repentance rather than just punishing. We, we see that truth in Hebrews, which we studied not too long ago. That God disciplines those he loves and he treats us as sons. When he's disciplining us, it says in Hebrews 12, that that's actually him showing us his affection when he corrects us, right? 
I want us to look though here at the prophetic engagement. One of the pillars of our church, right? One of the things we're leaning into in this season is the idea of prophetic engagement rooted in demonstrable faith. Prophetic engagement rooted in demonstrable faith. Several kind of big words. Prophetic engagement is essentially declaring truth. When we talk about prophecy, we're not always talking about future telling, right? We're not necessarily talking about predicting the future. We're talking about declaring the truth. That's why a guy like Elijah or a guy like Jonah, some of these people were considered prophets, even though they didn't necessarily foretell the truth or they didn't necessarily foretell the future, but they declared truth. That prophetic engagement is something all of us are called to as well as ambassadors of Christ, as people who carry his message of reconciliation, right? We understand that from Corinthians, that we have been called to carry the message of reconciliation, that God is no longer counting men's sins against them. We are his chosen method to reveal that truth to other people, and that requires prophetic engagement. It requires us to speak the truth into other people's lives. Daniel here is called before Nebuchadnezzar to declare a difficult truth. And for our purposes this morning, I want us to look at the way he does it. I want us to look at the way in which he engages prophetically on a platform of demonstrable faith. The first thing I want you to see as we look at this together, his engagement, is that he is compassionate in it. Look at verse 19. It says, once, once Nebuchadnezzar calls Daniel in to interpret the dream, he tells Daniel the dream that he's had. And this is Daniel's response in verse, verse 19 and following. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Before Daniel declares this uncomfortable truth, before he declares this message of judgment and God's punishment upon Nebuchadnezzar, before he does that, he's troubled in his spirit. So much so that at first he can't even speak. Nebuchadnezzar himself has to look at Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar in Babylon, has to look at Daniel and say, hey man, it's okay. I don't know what's bugging you, but it's fine. Just tell, tell me what's going on. Tell me what's on your heart. And Daniel's response to this message of judgment that he has to declare is, I wish the message I had to tell you wasn't for you. I wish the message that God has sent through this dream to you was for your enemies or for those who hate you. I wish I was here to tell you that those other people were gonna be the recipients of God's correction, but that isn't the case. I love the compassion of this. I think it stands in stark contrast, say, for instance, to Jonah, who I mentioned a second ago. Jonah, when he's told to go to the Ninevites and declare to them that they should repent of their sins and turn to God, Jonah says, no way. I don't want the Ninevites to repent. I don't want the Ninevites to turn to God. I don't want them to be spared. I want the Ninevites to get what's coming to them. I want the Ninevites to be punished, right? You can read the whole book of Jonah in in about 30 minutes, 35 minutes. You should read that at some time if you're not familiar. But the prophet of God, his initial response to taking a message of reconciliation and redemption to a lost and dying people was, no, thank you. I'd rather them remain lost and dying. Can I tell you that I I think that we're still guilty of that sometimes. I think sometimes in our interactions with the world in which we live, and there's a lot of wickedness and there's a lot of pagan activity and there are a lot of people who are acting against God. I think sometimes we as the followers of Christ get a little bit too excited about people getting their punishment. I think we get a little bit too excited about declaring the wrath of God and declaring the punishment that is to come. We, we don't have this compassion. We don't have this trouble in our spirit that goes, man, I wish this punishment was for somebody else. Why? Because we don't care about our fellow man. 
Most of the time what happens or what can happen inside the realm of Christianity is that we're so happy we've been saved, right? We're so happy we've been redeemed. We're so happy that the blood of Christ was shed on our behalf. We have a home in heaven. We know that we will live in the kingdom of God, that we are redeemed, that we immediately become so internally focused on how good we have it. That we start to look at those who do not know Christ, who are still lost in their sin, who are still dying and set to be separated from him forever. And we kind of look at them and go, yeah, well, that's what they deserve. Listen, Nebuchadnezzar deserved this punishment. Don't misunderstand. Daniel is not saying Nebuchadnezzar doesn't need to learn the lesson or doesn't need to be corrected. What Daniel is saying is that he cares about Nebuchadnezzar. And so should we. When we talk about prophetic engagement, we're not talking about jumping up on a table and pointing our finger in the faces of other people. It would have been easy for Daniel to be like, oh, wow, I've been waiting for this day, Nebuchadnezzar. You ripped me from my home. You murdered a bunch of my friends. You took all of the sacred vessels from our temple and you've been using them in defiling ways. God is going to smite thee today, Nebuchadnezzar. And I, for one, am thrilled, right? It would have been easy for him to declare that kind of a message. Nebuchadnezzar is his kidnapper and captor. Nebuchadnezzar is not a follower of God. It would have been easy for Daniel to be like, dude, you keep calling me one in which the spirit of the gods resides. I've told you a million times, there are no spirits of the gods. There is one God, Jehovah, and you're not him, and he's coming to punish you, right? It would have been easy for him to give all kinds of lectures here. That's not what Daniel does. What Daniel does is say, oh, king, I wish the message I have to declare to you was for your enemies. How can he do this? Well, Daniel remembers that he's in the very spot he's in because of his country's wickedness as well. There's a humble solidarity in it, right? That Daniel is only in Babylon. He's only enslaved the way he is because of his own wickedness. I think that we as Christians and followers of God, when we shake our fists in the faces of those upon whom the wrath of God is coming, when we condemn them and we judge them and we spit in their faces, I think that when we do that, we're forgetting that but for the grace of God, there would we be also. We're forgetting that that's where we've come from. That it is only by the saving grace of Jesus that we're not in the very same spot. We forget that humble solidarity with our fellow man. And so it's easy to point a finger and say, well, you're so broken and you're so lost and you're so wicked and you're so wretched that lightning's gonna come. And we're forgetting that if it weren't for the grace of Jesus, that someone shared with us the truth of the resurrection of Christ so that we could be ambassadors of that same message. We forget that we were there. I don't think Daniel has forgotten that he is also in timeout. Does that make sense? And I don't think we should forget that we're in timeout. I think when we look at the brokenness in our world, there should be a compassion that comes from recognizing that we are the same. That the people outside of these doors, the people who know nothing of the scriptures, the people who have not yet given their, their lives to Christ, are people who are just like us, except for the revealed grace of God. And that's why he put us in their lives. Not to curse them, not to judge them, but to show compassion because we are like them. I remember the parable that Jesus teaches in Matthew 18 of the unforgiving servant, the ungrateful servant, right? Whose debts are forgiven him. And then he immediately goes out and finds somebody else who owes him a fraction of that amount. And he pushes the guy up against the wall and he starts to shake him and curse him. And the king hears about that. And the king's like, wait a second, I forgave you all of this. And yet you can't just forgive your neighbor. You can't just show kindness to your brother who owed you a fraction of that amount. My heart and my hope, the king says, is that you would be a recipient of my grace 
and then you would replicate my grace. Right? That we don't just become, uh, that we don't just become reservoirs for the goodness and the love of God, but that we become conduits for it. The grace of God pours into us and then out of us into the lives of our fellow man. The first thing I want you to see in this text is his compassion. The second thing I want you to see, and I don't want you to miss it, is the clarity. There is compassion, but there is also clarity. Look at verse 20. He says, the tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the heavens live. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation. O king, it is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my lord the king that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from that time that you know that heaven rules. He declares a very difficult, you know, sometimes we're in circumstances and situations. Maybe it's with a family member. Maybe it's with a neighbor. Maybe it's with a loved one. Maybe it's with a coworker where we have to declare a difficult message. We believe that the Bible teaches clearly that anyone who hasn't put their faith in Christ is spiritually dead and will remain spiritually dead for all eternity, separated from Jesus in a place called hell. I don't know how many of you enjoy talking about hell or declaring that truth. I don't necessarily enjoy it, but I am called to it. We cannot flinch away from it. We can't water it down. We can't walk away from it. We can't soften it because by watering down the truth, by declaring anything less than the whole counsel of God in clarity, we do a disservice to those we're communicating to. Now that doesn't mean we have to talk about hell all the time. We can talk about redemption. We can talk about reconciliation. We can talk about the love and sacrifice of Christ. But my fear is that sometimes because it's uncomfortable to look at someone else and say, you need to surrender your life to Jesus, or you need to turn from your sin, or you need to repent of your wrongdoing. You need to stop feeling like you're the king who provides for everything and recognize that there is a God in heaven and you're not him. Sometimes when we have to deliver those difficult messages, we tend to kind of water it down, make it a little more easy to declare. You know what I'm saying? Hey, you know, you know, Jesus, you should know, you should come to our church. People are friendly there. Yeah, you should come to our church. It's happy times. You'll be comfortable there. And some of that is also true. But when we avoid hard truths, we're not doing anybody any favors. We might be making it easier for us, but we're not doing anyone else any favors. There is an absolute call for us as ambassadors to speak with clarity, to declare God's word with clarity. I, my wife and I have a little bit of a difference of opinion on doctors, like bedside manner. I'm the kind of guy who wants a doctor just to shoot straight with me. You know what I'm saying? I don't want, like, I don't want a doctor to come in and look at a mole on my back and be like, oh, what a funny little mole. That's such a, it, it kind of looks like Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, I don't know. Do you care if I get a couple pictures of this? It's, uh, it's very, this is a really unique mole. You've got a mole I've never seen before. And wow, I mean, this is something I'm going to be talking to my coworkers and peers about. You know, it's, a, it's such, a, such a cute little interesting mole. No, I don't want a doctor to do that. I want a doctor to come in and be like, that mole's going to kill you if we don't take it off, right? 
And I know probably not all of you agree, right? Some of you would rather have a doctor who's bubbly and soft and kind and gentle and sort of works his way around to the difficult message. I don't want that. I want a doctor to tell me what's going on with me and what I can do to change it. I want a doctor who's going to speak to me with clarity. I had a conversation with a doctor too. Well, no, now it's been a month ago. On a Friday afternoon at five o'clock, he was an ICU doctor in Phoenix, Arizona. And he called me and he said, hey, your, your mom is not doing great. She's been fighting with cancer for 20 years. Her liver is not doing what it's supposed to do. And he's like, I, I, I think we're at the end of our options here. And I said, okay, well, um, I'll clear my schedule and I'll come out to Phoenix next week. And he goes, sir, you live in the LA area? And I said, yeah. And he goes, sir, if this was my mother... I'd get in my car right now and I'd be driving to Phoenix right now. And I'll tell you what, I was in the car within 15 minutes. I packed a duffel bag and I was gone. I don't, I don't want that guy to soften the blow for me. I don't want him to dance around it. I wanted him to tell me that I needed to be in my car right then if I wanted to be holding my mother's hand when she transitioned to be with Jesus. And I was there because the doctor was blunt. Because it was clear. Because it was direct. I'm thankful. He probably had a hard time saying that to me. But I'm so glad he did. Not only do we want to be compassionate, we absolutely must be clear. It's why Paul, when we were studying Ephesians, said it as clearly as he did. Ephesians six nineteen, And also for me, he says, pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Paul says, pray for me that I'll be bold in declaring the truth. In Acts chapter 4, the, the early church was dealing with all kinds of persecution. And they, they prayed together in verse uh, 29 of Acts 4. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. We have to be bold. We have to be clear. Daniel is compassionate, but he's clear. Compassionate clear or or he gives clarity. The next thing I want you to see, the third of these things is in verse 27. He declares this message. Hey, your kingdom's going to be taken away from you. You're going to live like a wild animal until you remember that heaven rules. And then he says this in 27, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. The third thing I want you to see, not only is Daniel compassionate to Nebuchadnezzar, not only is he clear, but he provides counsel. It would have been easy for Daniel to walk in and go, hey, you know what? Here's the deal. This really bums me out because I've grown to like you, Nebuchadnezzar. I think we're friends, but the deal is God's going to smite you and you're going to be driven from the, from the kingdom for seven seasons. Who knows what that means? And it's going to be awful. Okay. I got to get back to some other things and split, right? But that isn't what Daniel does. He goes, hey, can I, can I give you a word of advice? He says, king, will you listen to my counsel? Now, the king had no obligation to do that, but Daniel provides it. Why? Because those who don't know God sometimes need a little help figuring out the way the world works. Sometimes they need a little help orienting themselves to the kingdom of God even before they believe in the kingdom of God, right? So Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, he goes, hey, can I, can I just give you a word of advice? Maybe start living a righteous life and stop oppressing everybody else around you perhaps it will go better for you. What's he saying? Well, he's, he's in essence saying what, what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said last week. Remember, as Kristen taught, she said they knew what God had said and they knew who God was, but they did not know what God would do. And that's true of all of us. We can know what he said and we can know who he is to some degree, but we don't know what he's gonna do because his ways are not our ways. 
We don't know in every case how he's going to respond. We talked about that a few weeks ago. We talked about prayer as well. When we pray, we pray in alignment with who he is and what he said, but we hold loosely what he will do. Because we have to hold loosely what he will do, Daniel comes to Nebuchadnezzar and he says, listen, I, I'll tell you exactly what the dream says. You're going to be punished here, but I got to tell you, knowing who God is, knowing the kind of gracious God I serve, it seems to me that it couldn't hurt to turn from your wickedness and turn to righteousness. Stop oppressing the poor. What's he doing? He's offering counsel. He's compassionate. He's clear. And he offers counsel. I think there are lots of opportunities in our casual conversations with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our family members who don't believe in Jesus, who don't think the Bible is true, who can't understand why we set aside time on a Sunday morning to do what we're doing, to still look at them and go, hey, for what it's worth, this is my advice to you. This is my counsel to you. Turn from your wickedness, turn from your selfishness and live for other people in the name of Christ. Live for the glory of God. I mean, it, it's, it's just us saying we know who God is and we know what he said, but we don't know what he'll do. Daniel doesn't know that God wouldn't say, you know what, because Nebuchadnezzar turned, I, I'm not going to chop down the tree and cap it. Now that is in essence what happens. Everything that happens in the dream happens. You see that at the end of the text, but I love the fact that he offers counsel here. Faced with an understanding of judgment, we can be messengers of hope in dark times. Right? We can be messengers of hope in a dark time. Do we live in a dark time? Heck yes. You haven't noticed it? Where have you been? You've been on an awesome vacation for the last six months? We live in a difficult time, you guys. People are at each other's throats. It's nasty out there. Do you think your neighbors maybe could use a little biblical counsel, a little godly counsel, even if they don't believe in God? You bet they could. In the midst of a dark time, we have the opportunity to afford people the wisdom of God that they maybe don't even acknowledge. He offers counsel. And I want you to see lastly and fourthly, fourthly and lastly, that there is a consistency both in his declaration and in his revelation. There's a consistency in his message and in what he's doing. Does that make sense? So check it out. In the very same moment that he's saying to Nebuchadnezzar, perhaps stop oppressing the poor. Start caring for the poor. Start caring for the oppressed. Show mercy to the oppressed instead of just you know, living in your pride. In the very same moment that he's telling Nebuchadnezzar to do that, he's giving him the counsel. Look closely. He's not only telling him to live a certain way. Daniel himself is actually living like that. Right? What, what does he say? In verse 27, he says to Nebuchadnezzar, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. In this story, who is the one that's about to face oppression? It's Nebuchadnezzar. And what is Daniel doing? He's showing mercy to the oppressed. So not only is he saying, this is something good for you to do, he's actually putting it on display by caring about Nebuchadnezzar. Does that make sense? I think sometimes we look at the passage in James chapter one that says, uh, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. And that's absolutely true. We don't just want to consume it and never live it. But I think it's equally true to say, don't just be talkers of the word, but be doers of the word. Don't just be speakers of the word. Don't just be people who can answer the Bible questions correctly or win at Bible trivia. Don't just be people who can quote the chapter and verse, but be people who quote the chapter and verse in alignment with the demonstrable faith. That you're not just calling other people to live a life of love and grace and sacrifice and, and all of these things. But you're actually living those things as well. It's amazing to me how often we're singing about grace or we're singing about love or we're pointing at other people and saying, you should be loving. You should be gracious. 
You should be sacrificial. You should be kind. And they look at the mouthpiece and there is no grace. There is no love. There is no kindness. There is no generosity. There is no sacrifice. Guess what? Those people aren't going to take your counsel because they're going to listen to you saying, hey, be kind. And they're going to go, that doesn't seem like it's working out for you. But when we live a life of kindness, when we live a life of demonstrable faith, then we have the ability to say, hey, kindness is working for me. Generosity is working for me. Grace and love and mercy are working for me. They worked for Jesus. Maybe give them a try. Daniel declares a difficult message with clarity, but he is compassionate He offers godly counsel and he is consistent both in his message and in his actions. I will tell you that I believe strongly that if we as a church family can become people of prophetic engagement through a platform of demonstrable faith, that we can see the same response in our generation, in our culture, in our neighborhoods, in our families. We can see the same response. What's Nebuchadnezzar's response? Go all the way back to the beginning and listen to the way he starts his narrative. He starts it by saying, it has seemed good to me, verse 2, to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. I think our friends and neighbors and family members can see as well that even the correction of God, even the chastisement of God, even the reproof and the rebuke of God is done for the sake of drawing people to himself. Wouldn't it be amazing to have your non-Christian friends or, or those who do not believe the Bible is true and you argue with at work, wouldn't it be amazing to see them turn the corner and go, I can see that the difficulty I'm going through is there to remind me that God loves me and is good. I think that response can happen in our age as well. But it comes when we deliver messages, yes, with clarity, but that are saturated in compassion, are bolstered with godly counsel, and are rooted in a consistency of word and deed that cannot be denied. That's what we see Daniel's prophetic engagement look like in Daniel chapter 4. And all these things come to pass in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And yes, there's a momentary turn, but it's not the end of the story. We'll see more of that as we come. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would help us to be people of clarity, people of compassion, of godly counsel and consistency, that we would look at at Daniel in this text and recognize that while he could have been thrilled about the punishment of Nebuchadnezzar, or he could have taken joy in your chastisement upon another, he recognizes a love even for those who were worthy of punishment a care and concern about those who have earned your rebuke. God, would you help us to be people like that, prophets like that, in a day and age where it's so easy to be thrilled or to be hopeful and expectant of the punishment of others, would we instead recognize that by your grace we have been freed from sin and death? And would we be hungry to carry that message of redemption and grace and reconciliation to our world, not only in word, but in deed? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.